Welcome to the By Study and By Faith podcast, presented by BYU Speeches, showcasing BYU devotionals that blend reason and science with faith, university disciplines with discipleship, and the scholarly with the sacred. Visit speeches.byu.edu and click on podcasts for more details. As a scientist, I make observations that help me to develop explanations for what I see in the laboratory. These explanations are called hypotheses, and they can be tested in the laboratory to determine whether or not they are true. An example of a hypothesis that I might make is, because chemicals A and B are known to be reactive, I reason or hypothesize that if A and B are mixed together, they will react and form product C. One of the first challenges that we as scientists face in testing our hypotheses is to determine the definitive test, or that analysis that allows us to unequivocally establish whether or not our hypothesis is correct. While many times our hypotheses can be simply stated, actually testing whether or not our expected outcomes materialize can be tricky. Let me give you an example of a simple experiment. If I mix solutions A and B, both of which are clear but reactive, I predict or hypothesize that when they are mixed, they will form product C, which is colored. Let's watch this experiment. Here we have clear solution A, and we pour solution B into it. And quickly, product C, which is colored, develops. Product C, which is colored, develops. There we go. As we saw, product C was dark blue, and thus its presence was quite easy to detect. But did you notice that there was a time element involved in this test? If we only watched for the first seven or eight seconds, we would not have seen the colored product C and erroneously concluded that the prediction was incorrect. The take-home message, then, from this experiment is that in order to really test the prediction, we had to be willing to wait long enough for things to happen. Stated differently, we need a degree of patience. Another frequent outcome of scientific experiments is that they don't always work as we expect. Let me show you another experiment that illustrates this principle. In this example, we're going to watch as an ice cube is placed on top of some gray powder. Based upon our previous experience of mixing water with such powders, you might suppose that we'll get a pile of damp gray powder or gray mud. Let's do the experiment and see what happens. I should caution you that this is not one that you want to do at home. Here is our gray powder, and here is the ice cube. I suspect that's not the outcome you were predicting, and you may have been surprised by what you saw. While these ex types of experiments have surprising conclusions, such outcomes can be truly enlightening because they lead us to think more deeply and often generate new understanding and knowledge. However, they can also be discouraging because we don't immediately understand what has happened. 
In this case, we may, begin, we may give up and in doing so fail to gain the understanding and new knowledge that we could have received. The reason that I've taken time to discuss how scientists learn in their laboratories is that I believe that there are similarities between how and what we as scientists learn in our laboratories and how and what we as brothers and sisters in the gospel learn from the experiences of our lives. I would even go a step further and suggest that the process of learning that each of us undergoes in our lives might be described as learning in life's laboratory. How is it, then, that learning in life's lab and learning in the science lab are similar? We, as brothers and sisters, experience situations in life and try to understand them in the context of what we know and what we have previously experienced. While we don't often make formal hypotheses, we do try to understand the meaning of our experiences and to learn and grow from them. Just as in the experiment with the ice cube and the gray powder, Sometimes what we experience is not what we expect or predict or even desire. Another way of saying this is that sometimes our lives simply don't go as we plan. Applying this to life as a college student, examples of things not going as planned might include a low exam score after hours of studying or a relationship that just doesn't turn out as we'd hoped or a disappointing response to applications to graduate or professional schools or for work. Just as in the science lab, these unexplained and unexpected results in life's laboratory can be at times confusing, frustrating, and discouraging. Today I would like to share three lessons that I have learned from the experiences of my life. I do so with the sincere hope that these lessons might in some way be helpful to you also. The first of these lessons that I want to share is one I call the lesson of the green table. In my bedroom as a child, there was a small green table. There wasn't anything special about this green table other than the fact that I played on it frequently. One of my treasured possessions as a young boy was a genuine cavalry fort and soldier set from a classic American TV adventure program entitled Rin Tin Tin. During the day, I would get out the Rin Tin Tin set and line up the toy soldiers and their horses on the green table. In my imagination, I would send the cavalry troops out on exciting adventures to rescue the innocent from some impending disaster. As a young boy, it just didn't get much better than that. At the end of the day, I would put away my toys and the green table became the place that my parents and I would meet as they taught me to pray. I remember very vividly my mother and or father coming into the room and teaching me to kneel down by the green table and say my prayers. I don't remember much about those simple prayers, but I suspect they contain my thanks for my toys, my love for my family members, and some simple requests for things that seemed important to me at the time. And yet this was one of the great training events of my life. As a result of the training and experience that I had with prayer at that green table, I don't ever remember questioning whether my Heavenly Father was on the other end of my prayers. I didn't think this belief was particularly unusual until I spoke with some of my friends who didn't share my beliefs. As the years went by, the green table and the toys eventually disappeared. 
but my prayers and my faith that they would be answered did not disappear. Many of my prayers were undoubtedly for trivial things, but as I grew and gained more experience, my prayers became highly focused and intensely sincere as I pled for help with the challenges of my life. One day, when I was about eight to ten years of age, I came home on a Saturday afternoon to find my father outside our home, wandering about in a dazed and not very coherent manner. I had never seen my father like this before and became genuinely worried about him. I went to get help, and we were able to get my dad into bed and called the doctor. While we waited for the doctor to come and help my father, we investigated and found a ladder tipped over the steep stairs that led down to our basement. We surmised that my dad had been trying to change the light bulb, bulb over the stairway and in the process fell from the ladder onto the long row of stairs that went to our basement. This apparent fall had left him in a state that I had never before witnessed. This was a crisis in my young life, for I had no idea whether my father's injury was truly serious or not. Based upon my previous experiences at the green table, I went into my room where I knelt and pled with my Father in Heaven to help my earthly father to be all right. As with previous prayers, my Heavenly Father answered my plea for help, and my earthly father recovered nicely. This and a number of other experiences with prayer helped me to develop great trust and faith in my Father in Heaven and in prayer. While the childhood experiences are long since gone, life's challenging experiences continue. When I was your age, I was intent on going to medical school. My life was planned around this goal. As often as I could, I went to hospitals to shadow physicians that I knew, and I worked in a clinical laboratory to gain experience. Just as it is now, getting into medical school in my day was intensely competitive. I made this a goal uh, uh, and a matter of sincere prayer, asking for the help that I needed to accomplish this objective. I applied to medical school several times and kept praying for success. After many, many months and nothing but rejection letters, an answer to my prayers was received. The answer that came into my mind was a very distinctive impression that all would work out well, and it was accompanied by an intense feeling of peace. This made me feel good, and I interpreted this answer to prayer as meaning that I would be accepted into medical school and live happily ever after. But this was not to be. No acceptance letter came after months of trying, and it became time for me to graduate. I ended up working for a few years after college while I struggled to figure out what to do with my life that wasn't going as I planned. I decided that if I couldn't go to medical school, I needed to move on and make a new plan for a career. Because I loved the sciences, and immunology in particular, which is the study of the body's immune system, I decided to continue my education in this subject. My wife Anna and I did what was needed to make this new goal a reality. She sacrificed deeply for me to be able to go back to school for master's and doctoral degrees and a postdoctoral fellowship, some nine and a half years of additional education that took us from coast to coast. The long, story, the long and the short of this story is that everything 
did indeed work out just as the answers to my prayers had indicated many years back, even though it did not work out in the way that I initially anticipated, nor on the time frame that I had expected. As I look back on my life, great blessings have come to us because I did not go to medical school. I am involved in a career that I absolutely love, and it's brought great blessings, wonderful people, and fascinating experiences into my life. I suspect that there are those in the audience today for whom life will not work out as you plan or expect or anticipate. For example, you also may not be able to do what you always planned on doing, or challenges may occur that you didn't anticipate. The concrete lesson that the Green Table experience has taught me is that we have a loving and kind Heavenly Father who answers our prayers and will help us in our lives. I have also learned that what is important to me also seems important enough to my Heavenly Father that He will listen and answer in a way that is truly best for me, just as He will answer in the way that is best for you. The second lesson that I would like to share today is what I call the Berlin Wall lesson. In August of 1989, I was able to visit Berlin to attend a world conference on immunology. This was a very special event for me for a number of reasons that weren't all related to science. I was raised in a family of German missionaries. My father and my brother, my aunt and uncle, my cousins had all served missions in Germany and spoke with great love for this country and its people. This was also a very moving time for me because my German missionary father had passed away some few months prior to this conference. My uncle and aunt, who had spent a considerable portion of their lives serving in church callings in Germany, knew that this was a tender time for me, and they were gracious enough to contact their friend, Dieter Berndt, in Berlin to see if there were any possibility that I could stay with him during my short visit. Brother Berndt graciously invited me to stay at his home, and I had the opportunity of a lifetime to interact with him and his family in a city that my father had served in. At the time of my visit, Berlin was a divided city due to the presence of the Berlin Wall, which was erected in August of 1961. This is a snapshot of the Berlin Wall that doesn't really show the barbed wire, the armed god, guards, or the gloom that was associated with this wall. However, it clearly shows the division that it brought about in the city of Berlin. This wall broke the city into the free western portion and the communist eastern one. Two separate governments ruled the city, and each had a very different philosophy about life and personal freedom. I had the opportunity to visit East Berlin while I was there, and I found that it was as different from West Berlin as a black and white image is different from a color photograph. One rainy night, Brother Berndt took me out for a tour of West Berlin. As we traveled along the wall that separated philosophies, governments, and families, he pointed out that there were places with white crosses painted on the wall or adjacent to it. He explained to me that these crosses represented memorials to those who had lost their lives as they tried to escape the captivity of East Berlin into free West Berlin. As we drove along, I asked Brother Baird if he thought the wall would ever come down. 
Now, to appreciate his answer, you have to understand who Brother Barrett was in terms of his background. Here was a man who had his feet in both church and university circles. He was educated in both spiritual and secular things. If anyone might give a valid prediction of the wall's future, it was Brother Barrett. Now to his answer to my question about the wall coming down. He turned to me and stated, No, it can't come down. He went on to explain that economically it made no sense and that it just couldn't occur as the governments would not allow it to do so. Well, for those of you who are not familiar with the rest of the story of the wall, some eight to twelve weeks after my conference concluded, I was back home in Virginia glued to our TV watching as a dismantling of the Berlin Wall was taking place. Thus, the wall that could never come down was being taken apart before my eyes. I believe that this happened because the Lord was ready for it to come down to further His purposes. What is the lesson, then, that this experience taught me? That events can and do occur in our lives that are unexpected and often on a timetable that is not our own. Whether different than expected or faster or slower than anticipated, the Lord works on His own time schedule and in His own way. In the case of the Berlin Wall, there was not a hint of its coming down when I was there, not even to a leader in the Church with years of education and experience in the secular world. It is important to note, in the case of the Berlin Wall, that the time frame of its coming down was much more rapid than anyone might have conceived. In contrast, there are many instances when the Lord's time schedule is much longer than what we might predict or desire. I think this latter situation is reflected in the scriptural phrase, learning to wait upon the Lord. I have experienced, as I suspect that you have, prayers to which answers seem to be long in coming. Nevertheless, my experiences in life have taught me with assurance that the answers do and will come. The third lesson that I have learned through my experiences in life's laboratory is one that gives me constant hope. It has been taught to me through my own experiences and through the experiences of others. It is tightly linked to the other two lessons that I have shared. The third lesson is that the healing power of the Savior is real and that it can touch our lives. The all-encompassing nature of His power to heal is taught in many places within the scripture. One of my favorite places is in the Book of Mormon in the first chapter of Nephi, where Nephi sees the vision of the Tree of Life, where he is shown the life, mission, and sacrifice of the Son of God. If we read from 1 Nephi chapter 11, verse 31, in Nephi's words, He looked and beheld, and he beheld the Lamb of God going forth among the children of man. And I beheld multitudes of people who were sick and who were afflicted with all manner of diseases and with devils and unclean spirits. And they were healed by the power of the Lamb of God, and the devils and the unclean spirits were cast out. As I have pondered this scripture, I marvel at the Savior's love and His efforts to heal us. I am at first struck with the observation that the Savior was not distant from those whom He healed. In point of fact, He was among them. His healing act was personal. 
I am amazed that among all the creations that are so very extensive that they cannot be numbered by man, that the Lord knows us as individuals. The second message that this scripture brings to my mind is the depth and variety of challenges and problems that the Savior dealt with. It appears to me from my reading of this scripture that his healing capacity was not limited to healing physical illness, as those who came to him had all manner of disease, which sounds all-encompassing. This scripture, coupled with life's experiences, teaches me that he can even heal the malady of our souls. As I consider my life, there are times when I am in need of that healing that comes only from him. Perhaps you, too, have felt this need in your lives. Because I have felt his healing power in my life and in my family's life, I have learned that he, who is our Savior, is the friend of the comfortless and of those who are having problems, whether they're problems with classes, with dating, or with any of the other significant challenges that specifically trouble you and trouble me. The message that I've endeavored to share today is that life's experiential laboratory has been a wonderful teacher. The learning process for me has not been easy, just as I suspect it has not been for you. The three important lessons that I have learned in my life and tried to share today are, one, that prayer is real and that the Lord is not only accessible to us, but that He is a God of miracles. I have come to know through the experiences of my life that He is interested in us and what is important in our lives. Number two, that the timetable of the Lord is different than our own and that it can be either quicker or slower than what we might expect. This observation leads me to understand that we must learn to wait upon the Lord. And finally, that the Lord knows us as individuals and that He can lift us and heal us. Now, just as I began this talk with a science experiment, I would like to end it with one. This experiment illustrates the most important lesson I have learned in my life. Let me describe to you what you are about to see. I preface this description with the suggestion that what you will see is, in my view, a metaphor of the testing that goes on in life's laboratory. You will see two colorless liquids mixed together. I would like you to pay careful attention to what you then see. Look for three color changes to occur. Change one from clear to dark. Change two from dark to a muddy but lighter brown. And change three from ready brown to, well, let's watch and see. Here are the two colorless liquids being mixed together. Now let's look for the color changes. Now you see the darkness coming in. And now it begins to lighten. And lastly, we have a beautiful silver lining to the vessel. What do these stages of this reaction suggest to me? The mixture started out as clear, much as our lives do when everything is going well. It then changed to very dark, almost black, similar to the storms that come into our lives. These storms may consist of low exam scores, personal relationship problems, 
failure to meet a goal, or feeling all alone with great personal struggles. The dark then lightened and became a muddy brown color, similar to the storm's passing and things seeming a bit better, yet we continue, perhaps, to feel confused or in need of further help. And then lastly, the brown color gave way to shining silver, the silver lining at the end of the trials. It is important to note that the silver lining comes when we gain understanding and the Savior's influence and love enters our lives. You'll note that this did not occur until after the dark period had already transpired. In a beautiful scripture in the book of Revelations, the Savior refers to himself as the bright and morning star. Elder Holland once taught that after the long night of darkness, then comes the morning and the bright and morning star, where the influence, love, power, and peace of the Savior. It is this influence in our lives that is the quiet after the storm and the peace that exceeds all understanding. He is the silver lining to our lives. He is the bright and morning star. The experiences of my life, a few of which I have shared today, logically teach me of a loving Heavenly Father and a Savior who are vitally interested in us. However, and far more important than logic, is the witness of the Holy Ghost that allows me to testify that we have a living Heavenly Father who loves us and is vitally interested and concerned in us. Furthermore, His divine Son, Jesus Christ, is our Savior, and through His atoning sacrifice we can be lifted, healed, and redeemed. I bear witness of these things and the ultimate peace, light, and life that come from the Savior. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. You've been listening to the By Study and By Faith podcast, presented by BYU Speeches, Please check out our other podcasts of recent speeches, classic speeches, and BYU speeches compilations on love and marriage, overcoming adversity, come follow me, the prophet Joseph Smith, and Jesus Christ, our Savior and Redeemer. Go to speeches.byu.edu and click on podcasts for more information. You can also find all BYU speeches podcasts at your preferred podcast provider.